health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. Have you ever made a purchase in which you didn't know the price until after the service was completed? The person offering the service didn't have any idea what the cost would be either? And prices for competing vendors are so hard to figure out, you really can't comparison shop to know if you're getting a good deal or not. In any industry, this would be crazy, except in the world of healthcare. We're so used to the American health insurance model that we accept these issues as just part of doing business. My guest, Chris Habig, is looking to see if there's another way in the form of direct care, which means putting doctors and patients together while removing the health insurance companies. He co-founded Freedom HealthWorks to accelerate and innovate care models in the form of direct care. At Freedom HealthWorks, he ensures progress in key performance areas while adhering to the company's core values. He works to expand Freedom's presence in the healthcare industry and increase mainstream awareness of direct care. He believes that the company can continue to change the way American healthcare is delivered. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Can you kick us off by talking about your background and how you came to found Freedom HealthWorks? Where we came in to Freedom HealthWorks and how I got here was was looking at a lot of the struggles from a patient standpoint. And I kind of had the, the privilege of growing up in a household where both my parents were physicians. And they were some small town doctors, the first ones back in the 80s who were there. They got to know everybody and they would take care of generational uh, you know, families, multi-generational families. And it got to the point where I was getting ready to go to college. I'm like, wow, I basically was raised in a doctor's office. Seeing how physicians can impact their community was incredibly powerful and really like one of the most positive uh, influences of my life growing up. And so I went to undergrad, I did all the pre-med, and I remember the day I closed my MCAT book saying, this isn't for me. There's no physician I've talked to in the past three years, and this was right when the ACA was getting debated and getting, you know, people getting uh, passed, and there was no physician I had talked to during my tenure in undergrad that said, medicine is a good career right now. And there wasn't a single physician who said, if I had a second chance, I would go back and be a doctor again. And so that's hugely powerful for, you know, a, a 21, 22-year-old coming out thinking, wow, medicine's the coolest thing in the world. You get to help people. You get to earn a great living, but you also work your tail off. And so that kind of grew, and that was, you know, over 10 years ago. And it kind of grew into this, it's this, this question I keep asking myself, how can I make an impact in healthcare? Why is healthcare so screwed up? Why do people expect to have a bad experience when they need to see a doctor? And so that's where we, you know, fast forward to today. And that's why, you know, at Freedom Health Works, what we do is connect physicians and patients without the interference of any third party payer. And so what we're looking at is insurance free membership and subscription type of healthcare, kind of the, the buffet of primary care. You get to call your doctor on speed dial whenever you need, uh, whenever you need them. Um, and so we see a lot of things, not just as like care needs, like, you know, if you cut your hand in the kitchen, do I need stitches? Yes or no. You know, save money from that standpoint. But a lot of like mental health aspects, a lot of people just need a professional to talk to and it's tough to access them. And so that's what we're doing, trying to help physicians retake private practice, start this grassroots movement and get them uh, get them free of all the shackles and roadblocks that they encounter to care for the patients. 
I actually am somewhat in this space for my day job and for regular listeners to the show know that my wife is a physician. So I am definitely tracking with you as far as your observations are concerned in challenges, frustrations that people have. Now, I always try to say for the show, we keep things easily digestible for the layperson. And gosh, this world does not lend itself <laughs> to being very easily understandable. So maybe a place for us to start. You already touched on a few of the current setup items of today's U.S. healthcare system. Do you want to go ahead and give what your perspective is of the main the main system that we have right now? I'm thinking uh, employer-based plans. Uh, you mentioned ACA, so the exchanges, uh, folks that are need-based Medicaid or Medicare. What does that look like from your perspective, just again, for people that are completely uninitiated? Yeah, it's kind of Pandora's box. And, and honestly, Greg, I think it's complex by design. Um, that's where a lot of the money gets to change hands and there's not a lot of transparency in it. And so people say, look, you need brokers to, to, to show you how this works and you couldn't possibly figure it out you know, by yourself. And you're like, wait a minute, I can go out and purchase a car and purchase a house. And these are complicated, high dollar transactions, but you're telling me you can't give me prices that I would understand. And so, you know, to answer your question, what I like to do is set the stage by saying that I like to use the term healthcare industry rather than healthcare system. Um, I think systems are localized. I think that's you know more of like your hospital system that employs a lot of doctors and they all make up this industry. A lot of times insurance companies, health insurance companies are thrown into healthcare and I hate that. I really, really do. Um, I am a firm believer that health insurance is merely a risk-adjusted financial tool. But... We use it for everyday maintenance items, and that is, in short, why it is so, so expensive. So a lot of examples we like to use is, you know, imagine if you had a leaky faucet and you were filing homeowner's insurance with it every single time. If your furnace goes out, um, you know, if you have a toilet that leaks, if, uh, you know, you, have a, you put a baseball through a window and you keep filing insurance for all this stuff rather than just paying out of cash, what you're doing is basically purchasing prepaid healthcare plans. And the vast majority of us don't use them. And so that's where you get terms like deductibles and premiums and out-of-pocket maximums. And I think it's only like 3 or 4% of Americans nationwide actually will meet their deductibles in any given year. So things like childbirth, um, you know, bad cancer diagnosis, anything like that, that's where insurance can really play an effective part by making sure you don't lose your house by having to declare bankruptcy. But it seems like people declare bankruptcy because healthcare health expenses are still the number one um, you know, bankruptcy-related cause for Americans out there. And that is because, in my view, it is just not being used correctly, like I said, the way that most typical insurances should be used. I like the comparison that you're mentioning for homeowners insurance. My mind also went a little bit to auto insurance that it may be a, a different way to compare it. If you go and have your car inspected and something's leaking, whatever you need to have changed, or even your oil, let's say, could your car continue to run on that same oil change that you had for longer than what is recommended? Yeah, but you're running a risk of 
a much bigger bill later on because you've done more damage. And I think you probably could draw a parallel there as well because these deductibles are as high as they are because people naturally want to save money. And oh, by the way, let's be honest, people probably don't prepare financially speaking for things the way they should. And obviously they're not going to be preparing for a health item that they're not aware of because they haven't gone to the doctor for preventative services, et cetera, et cetera. They are even more potentially setting themselves up for that big hospital visit for something that seemed to creep up, but you know, it would have been caught if there was more maintenance on the front end, more uh, cost transparency, which you've definitely already alluded to, uh, which I'm interested in more of your perspective there. Cause I think that's a big part of your mission. I guess let's just kind of go there for that financial aspect. So we do know about these giant bills. And as you mentioned, it can certainly lead to bankruptcy. What other challenges do you see um, with the administrative entities like health insurers or uh, even making sure that uh, malpractice insurance, I, I, I know, is one that always gets pointed to of, of a driver of cost and other regulatory things that are, are causing problems. And then well, we'll get to solutions on the back end once we've defined the problem. You know, to kind of go back to that point you made, you know, one third of Americans every year put off care that they desperately need and then something worse happens. And so that's a lot of people. Right. Um, we use the term functionally uninsured a lot when we talk to people who are curious about the medical system. What that just means is that I may have an $8,000 deductible, but I only have $400 emergency cash. So if something bad happens to me health-wise, I can't even meet my deductible to use my insurance that I'm paying an arm and a leg in, you know, no pun intended, into that premium already. So there becomes kind of this, this um, you know, essential question that where are the thresholds where health insurance actually makes sense? You know, if you are poor or not even poor, just like actually like middle class, you know, I, I sorry to use that word, but even like middle class people who elect to go without health insurance because it is unaffordable. And they're looking at this saying, holy cow, I got two or three kids. Savings are tight. Money's tight. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. I can't afford to be paying $1,000, $2,000 a month for something I don't use. Because again, I don't have $8,000 to meet my deductible if something bad does happen. I'm better off just being uninsured and then being at the mercy of you know, the benevolent nonprofit hospital uh, world, which kind of an oxymoron uh, right there. So it, it's very, very interesting. And then on the flip side, if you have a high enough net worth, you're going to go get the best care regardless of what your insurance gives you. You're going to go to the Mayo Clinics of the world. You're going to go, you know, to, to the top of the line. You're not going to go down to your local community hospital. So again, I ask, what, what, in what world does health insurance actually make sense for those type of people? And it's that middle group of incomes that we really see people that either they're business owners trying to take care of their employees or, you know, they're kind of that elderly population that thinks Medicare is the gold standard of, um, of healthcare policies when in reality it's just a minimum that the government sets. So there's a lot of just education hurdles to get over. And then, you know, going back to why people think that American healthcare is so expensive it's really coming down to monopoly power within hospital systems. Most places only have a couple options for medical care. The prices are not transparent. Um, 
in 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 uh, opaque markets. That's where the free market likes to go and die. So competition is very very healthy for all sectors of the U.S. economy. That's where we, that's how we got here. You know, the richest nation in the world in history. Yet, going back to what we talked about originally, it's so hard to discern and get a price when you talk to a doctor. But most people don't even try to do it. And it's the most asinine thing in the world. We would never go down to Walmart or Target and be like, oh, here's some dishwasher detergent. It doesn't have a price on it. I'm not going to ask a question. I'm just going to wait until I check out. And then I'm going to rip out my hair and go to social media to complain about it. It just doesn't happen in any other industry. A story that I have told, I don't think I've told it on my show, but I, I did as a guest on a different show where we were covering a lot of this topic earlier in the year my family went to Yellowstone and we thought it was a great idea for the kids to have bunk beds. And it was something that they would have for fun uh, to look forward to at the end of a long day of hiking. Well, sure enough, my four-year-old, she was three at the time, uh, fell off just high enough when she was <laughs> looking and weren't sure if she broke anything or not, waited overnight. Uh, luckily, again, for us, we're familiar with this world. So we knew the steps to take, right? Of Call the insurance, see what kind of out of network, because we were out of state, benefits there would be. Uh, was there any kind of like ortho that we could go to rather than just straight to ER? Because, of course, those costs can be wildly different depending on where you go. Uh, ultimately, we did drive to Bozeman, Montana, which was like an hour and a half away. There was an ortho clinic there, had her treated. Um, they did like a temporary cast that then she was able to completed once we got back to Virginia. And a little bit on the same point that you're making about how opaque it can be and also how wildly different it is. Of course, we didn't know exactly what any of those costs were going to be because it's all in the back end. It's all after your deductibles. It's all on the contracted rate, not having anything to do, assuming they're contracted with what they bill, unless, of course, God forbid, you go to an out-of-network doctor and then you, you really do have it all. And that goes to what you're saying, that mercy of the hospital system or the provider that you've gone to to write off a certain amount. And when we did get those couple of bills, now, technically, they were a little different in what they were doing, but the hospital – or I'm sorry, the doctor's visit itself – I mean, hundreds of dollars difference in just one provider in Montana, one provider in Virginia in what those total costs were. So even with that, just one experience there. And like I said, we lucked out. We happened to have um, out-of-state benefits uh, for the network that we had and, and could find in a network. If it would have been out of, of course, it would have been other crazier costs. And then what other industry do you get the thing, in this case, service, Say okay, and you're just at the mercy afterward, and then you get a bill, and you just are keeping your fingers crossed that it's something that you're able to pay afterward. So it is crazy from that standpoint. And then again, yeah, from the provider, like, <laughs> go ahead and ask the, the doctor when they come into your room how much it's going to cost. They have probably no idea <laughs> that's what their office staff you know is doing and, and what they're paying extra for. So not to necessarily give them a complete pass in that part of the process, but. Again, what other industry do you have a mechanic, let's say, doing a service and they can't give you any idea of what it's going to cost before they work on your car? So it is crazy. On the other side of this equation of just obtaining care, we talked about basically people not going and getting care that they probably should, especially for preventative services because they just feel like they can't afford it. What other barriers 
have you experienced in just obtaining the care separate from the cost? There's a big uh, vacancy in rural areas right now um, because a lot of these hospital systems have consolidated and bought up um, physicians' offices. Kind of the old small town doc is going away. And so there are physical barriers such as distance. Um, I remember looking at a case study in Missouri that I think I want to say that the nearest physician was an hour and a half drive away in any direction. And it's because they used to have all these small town doctors and then the hospitals came in, they consolidated locations thinking that we're going to create our own economies of scale. And it just didn't work out that way. And it was interesting because one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act published a an editorial, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal back in 2014 saying, hey, we missed the mark here. We thought innovation would happen in these centers of excellence, as they called them, and that, ho- that, that hospital consolidation was going to be a good thing. And that's where innovation would happen. If anybody is at all remotely familiar with bureaucracies and all the red tape and trying to innovate within massive organizations, the writing was on the wall of how badly they missed this. And they found out that innovation in healthcare, the flexibility and the speed of which physicians can deploy new methods of care happens in the private practice. And then that sprinkles around to other physicians because no hospital system, when you have to run things up the chain of command and all the way back down, if you want to try something new, no hospital system is going to take that on. And so that was a big miss. And so we're still paying uh, the price for a lot of that in just physically accessing a doctor, talking to a doctor, right? So there's that. And then there's that unknown. It's can be very scary to have a health issue. And most people either don't want to talk about it, don't want to address it. Um, you know, it's kind of like AA, you got you to gotta establish that there's a problem before you can actually seek care. And right now we're incentivized. If we get sick, we're incentivized to just wait that out for a week or two because we can't get into a doctor's office for three more weeks. And so we're looking at this saying, why in the world is this happening? Um, you know, last year during the COVID pandemic, you actually saw medicine take a giant leap forward with widespread use and adoption of telemedicine. Now, kind of as a joke and as a side, you know, when I call up my accountant to do my taxes each year, I don't call that teleaccounting. I don't understand why telemedicine is now a virtual phone call with your physician to talk about it and you know touch base, that kind of thing. And so it still illustrates how far behind we are just in the thinking uh, of, of how we access medical care in this country. But I will say that we leaped for about two decades. Um, we're using, you know, medical offices still use fax machines. And so they're super dated. They're super behind the times. And I'm looking at that from the direct care standpoint where we don't have any insurance involvement thinking, well, phone calls and video chat have been what my clients have been doing for the past five years. I don't understand why this is such a newfound uh, innovation here. And that just drives home what I said earlier, that small practices are the are where the innovation has to happen. Um, that's where small businesses innovate and then grow. You know, if if Fortune 500 companies did everything perfectly, there wouldn't be any room for any entrepreneurial uh, endeavors in, in the industry. And healthcare is very similar. So it's a it's kind of a psychological and physical barriers to attaining to um, to to getting care. And then I th- lastly, just to close that point off, 
a lot of people view physicians as commodities. You know, you see somebody with a stethoscope, you see somebody with a white coat, you're like, oh, this person's all the same. And so we're getting into PAs and MPs replacing MDs and DOs. And I think that's very, very dangerous. But I think that's by design from hospitals and insurance companies. Um, that to me, from a patient standpoint, is very confusing and, and very, very scary because I might not be talking to somebody that has the experience that I think they do. And then that's a trust factor as well. Do I trust this person to tell them everything that's going on or am I a little embarrassed about something, you know? And and you got to have complete transparency there from the financial side and from the care side. Going back to the example you gave around the ACA and consolidating, another point where maybe sometimes the intention doesn't meet what the actual experience is, is I, I remember thinking when these hospital systems began consolidating from the insurance side, you also saw that their networks were getting smaller. So actually, I'm from Pittsburgh. So here's an example. Uh, anybody that knows that area, UPMC and Highmark, and then like the other couple, UPMC is pretty big and and basically you can get all the doctors you need. Of course, you're not going to go to the other hospitals and vice versa. They've kind of waged war, <laughs> I think, against all the other carriers there. And, and so the idea, I think, like you're mentioning, uh, is supposed to be, oh, I've got two competitors. That means those competitors will drive down costs, just like you would assume in other industries. It doesn't seem to have worked out that way, probably for the reasons that you're talking about, that while this was going on, the private doctor groups couldn't go on anymore with the additional other regulations that seem to come, not just from ACA. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but uh, presumably it didn't help. And, and Medicare, it feels like year over year is continuing to have more and more oversight, et cetera, et cetera, that's going to drive up costs, that's going to even more require these smaller groups to basically give up and and use a giant hospital system that has that infrastructure that they can ultimately use. So uh, another area where, like I said, when I first saw the model, maybe as a consumer and thinking, yeah, I don't mind limiting my provider network a little bit to get more savings. Going back to another thing you mentioned about Medicare, I think another reason people like to say, oh, Medicare, even for all or whatever it happens to be is the fact that most technically not all, but most providers take some version of Medicare. So you're not limiting your doctor group, which again, I think it depends on the scenario, whether or not that helps, hurts both the care as well as the financial pieces of it. But uh, ultimately another instance where unintended consequences, <laughs> uh, it didn't quite do, I think, what people were hoping that it was going to do. And then as we're saying in a lot of these different scenarios, the regulation, whether that's from government oversight, well-intentioned, you want to make sure that fraud isn't happening, things like that, but does require a lot of administrative elements to it that will ultimately drive up more and more cost. And maybe getting us over a little more to the solution side, and I think really fits in with your perspective. For those that don't know, Medicare, and I think even the uh, regular insurances, really have tried to hit home on performance-based payments for the providers. And the idea there is if you treat somebody uh, and basically their cost for whatever period goes down um, because you did what you were supposed to do and it wasn't like a fee-for-service model, which traditionally Medicare has been, hey, we'll share that savings with you, the provider. Um, in the few providers I've talked to, hit and miss whether or not that model is working for them. I think they're still even in 
models of those uh, to, to, for proof of concept. Um, but I, that's where I feel like you're kind of going of getting rid of <laughs> all those other pieces out there. And then, for example, it's kind of been in my head of, right, why wouldn't a doctor basically have almost like a subscription type service? They're still incentivized the same way as a model like this, which is you get paid regardless of how many times you're treating your patient panel, if you will, which of course incentivizes you to do as good of a job for them as you possibly can, because then you're getting paid the same and hey, you may be less busy (laughs) because you've kept your panel healthier. Uh, So that's kind of where my head's going for, for where you fit into the equation. Tell me if I'm on the right track or again, where you're trying to fit in to help some of these frustration points. Yeah. What you're touching them on is incentives. You know, one of the things from a business owner standpoint, I love having the right incentives, but it's hard. It's hard to incentivize employees and and to do the right thing. You know, you look at bonus structures and how many bonus structures have you seen that have unintended consequences? You know, you, you bonus your sales team to go out there and get a bunch of new prospects or new leads. And then your ops team, your clinical team is like, you know, these guys are paying the ass. This isn't our, this isn't our target audience. And your sales team's collecting big bonuses, right? So going back to incentives, what we have right now is what a lot of people like to call a sick care system. We're only reacting to people's illnesses. Um, There's a big push for what we call preventive care. It's misguided. And again, that's from the ACA, putting a lot of that, you know, like free preventive visit on there. But if you've ever talked to a doctor or a patient going in for their free preventive visit, the moment they say that they're having neck pain or they want them to look at, you know, a mole on their back, that gets elevated, that is no longer free. And so those free visits are anything but, and by the way, you best keep your mouth shut or else it's not going to be free anymore. And again, that's how the incentives are built. That's why a lot of physician offices closed down permanently and physicians retired during the pandemic or got fired because that financial transaction was built on them having to see people in person. And when all the lockdowns happened, patients couldn't come in and physically see a doctor, but that's why, you know, people spend three hours in the waiting room. That's why you can't get an appointment for three weeks because no matter what you had to come into the office and very little medical care requires in person, you know, it requires you to be in person with your physician. So, Going back to the incentive aspect of it, when when new Medicare rules come down where they're bundling payments and they want to do these performances and they want to do quality metrics, I always ask doctors, how are they, how are they defining the word quality? And you can probably imagine, I get a ton of different answers to that. Some is, well, it's whatever Blue Cross Blue Shield tells us it is. It's whatever the government tells us it is. It's whatever United Healthcare tells us it is. And so you have all these different quality metrics, but most of it revolves around the fact that once a hospital treats somebody, they don't want to see them again or else they're going to be penalized, right? And to me, that doesn't make any sense. And again, from a business owner standpoint, I want as much touch points and I want as much relationship building with a client as I possibly can. In medicine, again, doctors kind of lament the fact that they can't control compliance. If you have a patient who really does not care about their health. They're eating horribly. They won't exercise. They smoke. They eat you know, terribly. They're 350 pounds. They're diabetic. You know that they can lose weight and eventually beat that diabetes, but they're not helping themselves out. Why is the doctor getting penalized for that? And that's just the system that we have right now. And so what we look at it as 
if a if a physician deems that they need to see somebody once a month or once a week, let's free them up to do that because not only they do they become that treatment center where if something is bad, they can go in and they can fix a person, but they're also incentivized to keep that person coming back and providing great care, great peace of mind and staying out ahead of issues. Um, I look at quality from more of a supply and demand and kind of a customer satisfaction standpoint. You know, Greg, if you and I went to a restaurant and we had a really bad experience and, you know, there were bugs in our food, we're not going back. Because the cost of switching restaurants is so low, we're not tied into it. Imagine if we had a restaurant insurance card and they said, well, your narrow network says you only got to go to this place for breakfast that has bugs in the food, this lunch place, you know, where you found a cigarette butt and whatever it is. And you have to hold to that. And that's your only option. I would never use that either. And that's what we're running into. So now we go out there and if I have a really bad experience with a physician who is just being paid cash, you know, most of the time it's around 80 bucks a month for a kind of buffet primary care. I'm going to say, great, I had a really good experience here or I didn't. And I'm going to go find a doctor like this because I'm not beholden to any network. So instead of being penned in, the world is now my oyster and I can go get really very affordable care from a doctor that I get to know and get to trust. And that's where the incentives come in. Another thing I was going to mention, I know I keep going to the health insurance part of it, but I've only had a couple conversations in this realm with providers, but I have had a few where I'm a data guy. So I will ask them what kind of information they get and basically monitor to know if United is going to pay them that extra incentive or Medicare is going to pay them that extra incentive. Now, maybe this isn't the case for every single provider, but he's basically saying, we have no idea. We are at the mercy of their data sets. So so not only just like you said, they would say, oh, quality is defined by these entities. They're flying blind until it comes time to reconcile it and see where they're at. Uh, So going back to the incentive part, if you can't even connect what they did, what the interventions were to whether or not they got paid more or got penalized more, it even convolutes it even more uh, in that overall setup. So that was enlightening to me. I've spent pretty much my whole career on the payer side. So I'm used to having the data and knowing what those structures are supposed to look like and hadn't really realized it from that provider standpoint. So that is also a very interesting point. What do you think short-term wins are, (laughs) Uh, if there are any, because again, as people say, well, heck, Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan just disbanded what was supposed to be this, you know, new coming of of healthcare idea. And apparently they didn't get very far. So let's start with maybe the quick wins, if you see any, and then we'll talk about maybe some of the long-term goals to keep peeling back the onion. Yeah, curious enough, I couldn't figure out what those three companies were trying to do. And I'm not even sure they knew what they were trying to do. And then Amazon comes in and they start doing uh, mail order prescriptions and then just start up their own employer clinics and say, hey, we fixed the problem. But employer clinics are kind of like glorified nurses' offices. Um, they don't really fix anything. They don't get back to that doctor-patient relationship. Um, <clears throat> and so what I think short-term, and this is a challenge to any physician out there, you've got to know your prices. And I understand where people will, will, physicians will say, well, Chris, if I start asking what financial is, does that impede my care choices? And I'm saying it should absolutely be a part of your care choices. 
if I can say, Greg, you know, I'm going to send you over here. They got the best MRI system in the world. It's brand new. It's going to be 5,000 bucks. Or I can say, hey, there's an MRA over here from the 90s. They do a good job. And guess what? That's 400 bucks. Leave it up to that person to go out and decide where they want that elevation of care. Again, you know, when you walk into a, a, a doctor's office and ask them how much it costs and a doctor doesn't know because for some reason they think that that clouds their judgment, I mean, that's that's complete BS. It is on the physician to know exactly what they are doing and what they are recommending and then leave it up to an educated healthcare consumer to make the best decision for the family to avoid bankruptcy or to get the best care that they can actually afford. Um it's not rocket science. And, and when a physician starts asking questions around, maybe that leads to a better better conversation of why hospital prices are so expensive compared to independent facilities. So that can happen tomorrow, right? So that's it, you know, from a short-term standpoint. Beyond that, I mean, people just have to start asking questions from from consumer standpoint. If you have an operation coming up, whether it's a knee surgery or whatever it is, start asking prices, start asking questions about those prices. Get in that mindset of, okay, when I go to a gas station, why do I choose the gas station across the street that's a penny less? And why don't I apply that to any decision from a care standpoint, a healthcare standpoint? And again, getting over that psychological hurdle that it cheapens it or something along those lines. I haven't really put my thumb on it yet, but um, people want to avoid that question from whether like they're afraid they look like idiots or the doctor's going to look at them funny and tell them to get out of here, which never really happens. You know, physicians are people too, and it's it's like you got to ask those questions starting off. If you want, if you want something to become more affordable, you got to know what it costs. Um, that's that's the bottom line. Going long term, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Um, I don't think that a universal Medicare system is going to be this panacea that everybody thinks it is. Um, one of the reasons why is because healthcare is not a free market. It it, it functions as a heavy, heavily regulated, almost kind of kind of like a like an oligarchy. You know, there's four big insurance payers, and then the government already pays about sixty to sixty five percent of medical bills right now. And so if you're upset with how that functions, why in the world would you want to take that from 60% to 100% and force physicians to basically become government employees? And it's not going to turn out well um, whatsoever. But I always tell doctors that, you know what, UPS and FedEx, they do pretty well when USPS has monopoly on the postage uh, services anyways. So there is some hope out there that kind of a parallel system will grow, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think what we need to do is step back from the precipice of that discussion and look at if we want to reform health insurance, leave medical care and access to care out of it. We have to separate health care from health insurance. Um, that's going to be one of the biggest things. One of the kind of like you know moonshot ideas is to separate um, employment from health insurance coverage. I think that create that individual market, let people again, shop for auto insurance and shop for homeowner insurance themselves and not put that burden on companies because they don't want to, they're not equipped to be able to service their employees in the best way possible. Let the American consumer who's done amazing things over the past 250 years of our existence, 
let them go out there and let the free market work in its in its way and really unshackle, like I said, physicians and and let physicians um, be the great kind of pioneers and the great pieces of our community that they're supposed to be and that they're kind of made to be. You know, we always say that medicine's not a career; medicine is a calling. So, you know, there's there's like I said, there's there's things we can do in the short term just by asking questions and and gaining knowledge and and kind of learning uh, versus big things that's. You know, it's going to take uh, take some action from the legal side and from the legislative side. And I don't have a lot of hope for that, but there's a lot of grassroots things that we can do just independently to better our situations. And that'll spill out. I am wholeheartedly with you on that connection between your employer and your health care. I, I feel like there's been enough calls for that. You would think it would get some traction and... Gosh, COVID, of course, has exposed a lot of things, but that's one as well, that flexibility in your job. And I talk about the gig economy and people having side hustles all the time. Well, one of the things that really prevents people from having a part-time job here and something they like to do and a part-time job here to do something they want to do is, oh, by the way, I have to be a full-time employee somewhere to get those health benefits that – I can't get at the same rate in most cases uh, elsewhere. And again, the exchange for anybody that's not been out there, the only reason I ever really looked at it once is because before the prices got completely vetted, I had a little bit of a hope when I was reading for baby boomers that the only reason they were still working is because it was before they got to Medicare age and they needed that stopgap. So wow, if the exchanges actually becomes an affordable option that they can bridge the gap to Medicare, maybe they'll actually start retiring when they want to. And hey, us younger guys can take some of these jobs that they're still uh, sitting in and, and you know, you can sort of climb that ladder a little bit more. Didn't really happen because again, for those that maybe haven't been out there on those markets, like you said, gosh, I hope you don't hit one of the deductibles <laughs> for what you have out there because that means you probably had something major happen in that particular year. So you're sort of checking a box that you have the care and don't have anything else. And right, that of course goes right into making the market manipulated. It's not standard competition as we would know it in – I'll continue with the auto insurance example where it's an individual that – Everything is right there. You're on the same playing field as the next person, et cetera, et cetera. One other item while I'm on that tangent of the employer part, I think when people are looking at their total benefit package, they tend to forget how much that health insurance could be worth. Uh, for example, I, I definitely worked for a company where people said, oh, they don't pay as much as fill in the blank other companies, but their benefits package was incredible. It's the last time I ever had a no deductible like HMO stop plan where they paid for everything and knock on wood, both of my children were born while I was on that plan. So it was a, a sweet deal uh, from that standpoint. But again, it, it's the same thing that we're saying in a different form, which is it's not straightforward. Even when you're talking about how you're being compensated at your job, you have to be able to understand how you're using this benefit and why in the world is that tied to employment. So maybe again, with the backside of COVID, that that part at least will get a little bit more steam. And unfortunately, I'm with you as well that the bureaucracy and everything else that has become entailed in straight government programs, but again, as well as the oversight and so on, even in these employer-based and in the exchange and so on, unfortunately, is not going away uh, anytime 
soon. And it also makes me think even from the standpoint of, again, the incentives of the providers. You hear this, maybe I'm biased. I'm sure I am biased because I, my wife is a <laughs> provider herself, but do you really want to go to school and incur all this debt? And of course, that's a whole different topic, right? As far as student debt is concerned. And then you do hear a lot in these conversations about reforming healthcare, the indication of like, well, the doctors make too much. Well, you know, there's a whole lot of other people that are getting paid in this crazy amount of uh, touch points that occur from here to there uh, be- between that interaction. So that also kind of worries me some with, with all of those those infrastructures. Tell me this, how does Freedom HealthWorks compare to the, I want to call them like the Christian-based plans. I know a lot of actually entrepreneurs that I know will enroll in those. That is basically that group puts money in. I don't know how robust their networks are, but how similar is that concept? Because I know that's gained a little bit of steam. Yeah, that's an alternative. Um, we kind of colloquially call them health shares. And that is what the number one alternative is to health insurance. Um, people look at that and I'm a, I'm a convert. I am. Um, you know, my, my wife and I and, and our infant daughter were on uh, in health insurance and we're paying close to $1,000 a month uh, in premiums. And we had like a $6,000 deductible or something ridiculous. And I'm like, what in the heck? We're just burning money. We're just lighting money on fire. And so where we are in the direct care world is, of course, we get people used to paying care or paying for paying cash for care outside of that insurance world. And so these health shares have popped up. And we joined one and our monthly spend went from a thousand down to like four hundred and forty dollars and our deductible went to a thousand. And so I'm like, okay, well this is this makes a lot more sense financially. Now what you what we are is, you know, we pay cash for like a flu vaccine or anything like that, but those costs don't equal anywhere close to what we would paying in premiums for a year. And we're saving a ton of money doing this, but it is still a financial backstop in case anything happens. Um, you know, the drawbacks where they get nicked is it is not uh, actuarial underwritten. And so in theory, if every single person who joined a health share had a car accident or broke their leg, it would you know technically go under. But these things, they're, they, they've learned lessons in the past. And so they're very financially insulated. And so they're very good. Um, you know, a great situation for us. I'm not going to speak to everybody. You know, I'm not one of these guys out here saying nobody should have health insurance whatsoever. Get what makes you know sense for you, but again, use it as a financial tool. Um, so those are health shares. Where Freedom HealthWorks comes in, um, if a physician is interested in leaving kind of the hamster wheel of traditional fee-for-service care or hospital employment, that's where we come in and we help them in 90 days transition and start up their own private practice utilizing that membership model. So you know, they don't contract with any insurance companies. They don't contract with the government for Medicare or Medicaid. And what that does is allow them to jettison a lot of overhead and reduce their fees substantially. Um, you know, we save, uh, we probably pay a tenth of the price for in-office dispensing that people would pay at CVS. So we have a ton of savings there. Our lab costs across the country are pennies on the dollar from what hospitals can charge. And again, what they look at is, you use it basically like a gym membership. Um, if you go work out, you just pay a set monthly fee and you can use it as much or as little as you want to. Most gyms, and I used to manage a gym, you know, coming out of undergrad, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Kind of the thinking was that we make money off people who don't use it. And I took that. I'm like, you know what? 
I don't think that is true. I think we make money off of the people who use it every day because they bring other people in. They buy snacks. They buy, you know, apparel. Um, they're the ones who are telling everybody else around them, hey, come join my gym and work out with me. And that's the type of patients that we want. You want that relationship with a, somebody who you're going to see, you're going to be compliant, right? And so that's where Freedom Health Works comes in. And, and we're starting to work with uh, employers and get companies, small companies mostly, and say, hey, do you want a benefit that people will actually appreciate and use? Give your team a private physician that their family can go to rather than give them deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums and premiums and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, what we found is, is going back to what you said, um, I think it was, it was, uh, oh, I, I have to look up, you know, we'll have to see who, who it was, but um, they published a study that in 2020, the average health premiums for a family of four was $20,000 a year. And the employer was paying 12 of that and the out-of-pocket was eight or the, the, um, you know, the employee responsibility was 8K. And so you look at that thinking, wow, I'm only making 40, but I have a $20,000 benefit package. What could you do with that money? And would you want that rather than this insurance policy that your, that your company is giving you? So that's what we do. You know, in a nutshell, at Freedom Health Works, we give doctors, patients, and employers an alternative to the healthcare system that really nobody likes. Clearly, I feel like as we're swapping stories and perspectives, uh, I think we're a lot on the same page. So I love it. Um, I, I And again, having a physician in my home, we've <laughs> talked about that perspective of, gosh, depending on what could happen with different government programs and different regulations and so on. Well, and actually, I don't think I mentioned, I was a dermatologist. And, and absolutely in that world, there are dermatologists that have become just – um, fee-based, not participating with these insurances. And that way it's more predictable. They don't have the overhead, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like I have a pretty good handle on on what you're doing. And like I said, I think it is definitely worthwhile, is definitely needed. <laughs> so uh, uh, you don't have to convince me, at least in, in the mission that you have going on. And, and again, the overall perspective. But uh, that's, I think, most of what I had for you. So Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact information, of course, where they can find out more about the company, if you're on social media, and maybe any promos or events, things like that? Yeah, freedomhealthworks.com is a great place to start. Uh, you can get a hold of us there. We have contact forms, phone numbers, anything you want to. Uh, we're on Instagram, uh, Freedom Healthworks. Twitter is at FreedomDPC. Um, we're on all the all the Facebooks, all the socials, you know, uh, as we put it. So it, it's always an interesting conversation on social because you get a lot of spirited personalities out there that want to help fix a massive problem. So if anybody's interested in doing that, check us out again, freedomhealthworks.com and uh, join the conversation. And, and if this looks like something that you're interested in from a patient employer or a physician standpoint, you know, we're happy to work with anybody anywhere. Very cool. And I will put all of the information into the show notes so it's easy for folks to find you. And again, Chris, I appreciate you being on the show. We'll be in touch. Thank you, Greg. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. 
You can also join our conversation at suburbanfolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thank you for listening to my daddy.